Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week was supposed to be our season three finale, but due to some extremely exciting developments, all good news, that episode is being pushed to next week. I'll tell you more about that as the days go on. This week, instead, I'd like to take an opportunity to tell you about something that I've been thinking about a lot, and it's actually one of my favorite little anomalies about our culture, ghost towns. My little hometown of Altamont Springs is starting to look like a ghost town these days. With our local parks closed and many businesses temporarily shuttered, the streets are very, very empty. I live next to the Altamont Mall, a place I have been to more times than I can count. I grew up there. I've spent hours in the food court, the movie theater, just walking around with my friends. Today, it's all empty. The doors are locked. The parking lot is abandoned. I've taken a few walks around the edges of the mall just to get my blood flowing, past the movie theater and the bookstore, the restaurants, the department stores. There's a bus stop where some folks still wait we smile at each other as I make my way along. Others have the same idea. They put on their sneakers and a face mask, and they have a little hike around the strange asphalt hills of the Altamont Mall parking lot. My favorite find on these little walks has been an osprey nest. High on top of a street light, despite the fact that anti-bird spikes have been put on top, an osprey has gathered branches of all size and arranged them into a little nest where she sits on her eggs. I sat there for a long time on the curb by myself, staring up at this bird and her babies. She called out every few moments, and far away in the gray clouded sky, her partner would call back, sweeping over the lake to bring home food. I'm glad to see them there. I'm glad to see anyone out there. I try to visit every other day, but sometimes I can't. I wonder if they're okay today. Even though Altamont is not an actual ghost town, there are many real ghost towns in the state of Florida. It makes sense. We're a state of flash-in-the-pan ideas that burn bright and disappear in a puff of smoke. By some estimates, we have nearly 300 ghost towns across our peninsula of all shapes and size and variety. Today, as our little suburbs and hamlets find themselves with paths far less traveled, we're all living in little temporary ghost towns. We can learn something, I think, from the many others around our state. I'd like to tell you about some of my favorites. We start at our most northern border for this week's episode, Ghost Towns. At the end of World War II, there was a new president in the office, Dwight D. Eisenhower. American industry found that riding a wave of confidence could elevate our development as a country. Eisenhower had many, many plans. He was a military man, and when he was a young officer in the army, he was part of a caravan of men traveling across the Lincoln Highway, the first transcontinental road in the country. He believed that for a country to develop and connect in a larger economic way, there needed to be easier, more expeditious travel between everyone, a stronger connection. Train travel was effective, but not perfect. The country needed highways, and in 1956, the Federal Highway Act was enacted. Several interstates went into construction at the same time, one in Missouri, one in Kansas, and one in Pennsylvania. Soon, the interstates made a web across the country, connecting larger economic centers in a fundamental way, while also splitting poor neighborhoods in half and wiping out dozens of marginalized communities. 
By the 1960s, the interstate system was a raging bloodstream at the heart of America. Before this, however, those elevated highways were not the standard. There were still amazing, crucial roadways in America, but they were called routes. They ran through small towns weaving from one destination to another. Before World War I, back in 1911, the Atlantic Highway was at the core of that very idea. It started in a tiny little town in Maine called Calais, right near the Canadian border. It ran through Boston and New York, Philadelphia and Baltimore, Augusta, Georgia, and eventually Miami, Florida. Then, Flagler's Railroad was revitalized and turned into a highway, meaning you could go from Maine to Key West on just one little road. It was realistically a collection of smaller regional highways that were connected by its purpose, to be a centralized East Coast route that ran from the northern tip to the southern. And because Florida became the heart of East Coast tourism, before I-95 served the same job, this route was called US-1, and it was the gateway to a sunny, beachside vacation. There were many ways to enter Florida, highways along the stretch of the Panhandle, but US-1, being the main artery of this idea, always garnered the most folks passing through. On the border of Georgia and Florida, there were two little towns, Folkston and Boulogne. One of these towns no longer exists. We've talked a little bit about the Georgia Bend before in the first episode of this season. It's a unique little part of our border with Georgia where it traces along the St. Mary's River. The state of Georgia dips far into what one would assume to be Florida, creating a little pocket of Georgia residents right along our border. On the eastern corner of where the Georgia Bend begins is where Folkestone and Boulogne sit. These two towns were founded in the late 19th century, around 1881, as a series of interconnected southern railroads ran through them. It's unclear how these towns got their names, but the most likely theory is connected to the English Channel, the thin bit of water between the British Isles and Greater Europe. On the English side, there's a town called Folkestone, and on the French, a city called Ballon-sur-Mer. Now, the English Channel makes the St. Mary's River look like a trickle, but these two pairs of towns are strange shadows of each other. Folkestone, Georgia today is still a vibrant city, reliant on rail travel as it's one of the last stops between Florida and the rest of the South. Though it's on the other side of the state border, it is still considered part of the greater Jacksonville metro area. Boulogne, however, is a single intersection with a church and a gas station. This Florida town is gone. The origins of its demise are as unlikely as I've ever heard. The state saw Boulogne as the perfect spot to sell all that Florida had available for any visitor. When the road was first paved in the 1920s, it was a quiet arrival met with little fanfare. There was barely a town at all after a hurricane destroyed the original construction in 1896. The city rebuilt, and by the time the 1950s came around, a new town was stable enough in order for them to be incorporated officially in 1955. In that time, the city of Boulogne was aided by the state in becoming the gateway to Florida, a tourism mecca. Hotels gleamed along US-1 and local restaurants called you inside. If you stopped, you would be greeted with cups of freshly made orange juice, making it one of the first places in Florida to offer a now ubiquitous tourism ploy. The value of automobile travel cannot be overstated, and the state saw how crucial a place like Boulogne could be in selling the sort of experience you could get in Florida. 
It was local, it was quirky, and it was homegrown. But the citizens of Boulogne became their own worst enemy. To ensure a little bit of extra cash was coming into the city government, the small police force had developed a very simple ruse. As a traveler would head south through Georgia, the speed limit was 55 miles per hour. Once across the border, however, the speed limit would drop drastically to 35 miles an hour, an impossible task for any driver. A speed detector would be waiting for them at the crossroads of Boulogne, they'd immediately be pulled off the road and promptly smacked with a significant speeding ticket. For almost a decade, Boulogne casually became the most notorious speed trap in the South. It got worse when I-95 opened along the Atlantic coast and the city found itself less traveled, less populated, and soon running low on funds. The speed trap persisted, one of many across the South, but none more notorious than Boulogne. In 1962, the state government put an end to it. The city was punished in the worst way. It was officially unincorporated. The state decided Boulogne was no longer a city. It was wiped off the map and what was once the gateway to vacation is now just a string of abandoned visitor centers and empty motels. They were an official city for just eight years, and when they faded into obscurity, their sister city of Folkestone, Georgia, was left alone along the St. Mary's River. While Boulogne was stripped of its existence by the state, most other little towns speckled through our peninsula are abandoned because the industry that was once supported here no longer exists. For example, Florida was a huge lumber state for some time, but lumber moved north and most of the lumber towns fell away. Many towns sprouted up along Flagler's railroad, hoping that his development would support their existence, but most failed to keep themselves alive as the trains kept moving from big city to big city without stopping to say hello. Agriculture of all types took over the middle of our state and finally put down stakes, but no industry was quite as prominent as the citrus industry. Little towns began to appear in the midst of Florida, with citrus trees filling up most of their land. Ghost towns in Florida and the citrus industry go hand in hand. In the winter of 1894 into 1895, a pair of shocking freezes struck the state and gutted hundreds of cities from top to bottom. The citrus trees literally exploded. Overnight, entire Floridian villages vanished, with property owners and farmers grabbing whatever money they could salvage and running away as fast as humanly possible. What happened to the buildings was the last thing on their mind, so naturally, they were left behind. Some have been demolished and built over, some sit empty, lost in the woods, gravestones to Florida's most titanic collapse. One such graveyard is at the northern edge of the Ocala National Forest called Kerr City, spelled K-E-R-R. -R. In the midst of my isolation, knowing I'd not be in touch with another living soul, I hopped in my car and drove to the forest. Honestly, I've been missing Florida nature very badly, and a quick trip into the woods turned out to be the perfect way to spend an afternoon. The trees stood tall overhead, lakes and rivers gleamed against the sunlight. The little towns in the woods sat with local businesses vacant, longing for friendly faces to return. I resisted stopping and walking into the woods for now. Kerr City was waiting. A man named Robert Kerr arrived here to survey the area, and he named the lake after himself, Lake Kerr. But in 1835, Seminoles still ruled this part of the state, and his team of surveyors were pushed back to Fort King, which is now present-day Ocala. 
The area next to Lake Kerr was briefly a cotton plantation until the Civil War, and in 1884, Kerr City was officially formed as the second city in Marion County, after Ocala. Long before I-95, long before US-1, long before even the trains crisscrossed Florida, stagecoaches were the primary means of transit. Even as trains became prominent, a series of stagecoach highways connected the larger cities, St. Augustine and Jacksonville, to a series of towns that no longer exist. One stop between Palatka and Tampa was Kerr City. Right along the beautiful Still Lake, they built a hotel, a school, a post office, and homes they started growing citrus trees. They hoped agriculture could be a lifeblood. And just as the interstate gutted travel through the city of Boulogne, the trains intercepted travel from the stagecoaches just as the devastating citrus freeze ripped the trees from the ground. People fled from the depths of the Ocala National Forest, leaving Kerr City behind. One family, the Smileys, bought what land they could and cared for it, trying in vain to keep some life in this city. Over the next several decades, the hotel burned to the ground, the now oldest Texaco pump in Florida opened, and eventually, a new town called Salt Springs opened just a few miles down the road. Which is where I eventually arrived, emerging from a heavily wooded road and seeing a gas station and restaurant just nearby. Salt Springs is a little shining spot of civilization, and a few people were also passing through. It was nice to see other faces, though distant, passing by in their cars. When the park's recreation spots were open, this was a great spot for people to dive into the spring, camp, fish, hike, whatever they wanted. There are towns out here in the forest, and everyone I visited has a warmth. They've isolated themselves by going this deep into the woods, but a friendly face is always welcome. Today, it was cold and quiet. As I turned onto the main road toward Kerr City, I glanced south and soon caught glimpses of Lake Kerr shining in blue. Then the forest divided us again. My map suddenly told me I had arrived, a pull-off road with a dead-end sign. Shrugging off my natural concerns, I headed south along a dirt road. After a quarter mile, a no trespassing sign and a small house around the bend. There were roads that led closer to the water, to the buildings that still remained, but gates blocked my path. I didn't want to bother anyone or cause any disturbance, so I carefully turned around and drove home. The ancestors of the man who had bought this land after the city folded still own it and care for the remaining ruins, an empty white and red post office and a green and white boarding house. They say the buildings are haunted. How could they not be? So many had come and gone and left so much behind. I think it's part of what draws people to ghost towns in the first place. We like a scary story, but there's nothing tangible to them. There's nothing that can be seen or touched. But a ghost town, there's something there. A building, a sign, a structure, ruins. You can go to the space and feel something physical there. That's why I always have this visual of a ghost town. An empty, overgrown city, vacant and awaiting our return. Except for one thing. I visited a few ghost towns now, and I have to be honest with you. I don't think there's such a thing as ghost towns. Don't get me wrong, on a very technical level, they absolutely exist. There were once cities, they stood tall, but now they're empty buildings and blinking streetlights. But there's also people. No matter where the ghost town is, there's still people. When I drove to Kerr City, I was expecting a shadowed grove of trees with a haunted, bleak post office. Instead, I found a city 
There are ghost towns all over Florida that have met the same fate. Years ago, maybe there was a lumber industry or an escape from civilization, and sure, those dreams failed and the name fell away, but now there's a coffee shop or a home or a city park. One of the most famous ghost towns near me in Seminole County is called Slavia. Around 1911, a group of travelers from Slovakia fled Europe just before World War I and hoped to develop a religious Lutheran colony in a calm spot in central Florida. Many of the buildings they established have fallen away, but a Lutheran church still stands, as well as a nursery called Lucas Nursery. It's owned by the ancestors of those same Slovakian colonists. They sell flowers and invite you to come in and look at butterflies. Right after I graduated from college, I got my first job at a bookstore, and I would pass by Lucas Nursery en route to work. It was always one of my favorite sites. People would walk in and out carrying huge pots with flowers inside or a bag of soil or some seeds. When I learned it was considered a ghost town, it became clear to me. Humanity is a resilient thing, in ways both helpful and harmful. The citrus trees may explode, or the interstate may call travelers away, but we return. Names may get written off the map, and a town may change its title, but we are still here. I'm sorry to say it, but ghost towns don't exist. They are just empty spaces where one day, I believe, we will all return. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really amazing stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning, though you're gonna go pretty close. This episode is inspired by a lot of the early episodes that I did, especially at the end of 2018. I wrote about the Ocala National Forest, I wrote about the Indian River Citrus Company, and I wrote about these ghost towns right along Cape Canaveral. They are some of my early history episodes, but they inspired so much of what is in the DNA of this story. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it means the world to me. Knowing that this show matters to you as much as it matters to me makes it all worth it. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. You can also find my personal Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. There are also many ways that you can support your local Florida community during this crisis. I've included some links below in the description so you can support those around you. They need you now more than ever. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo. Nix is spelt N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week for real this time, is the season three finale. It might not come out on Monday. It may come out on Tuesday or Wednesday. I will tell you on the social media channels, it's going to be a very special episode. I've been working on it for a very long time with a very good friend. You are going to love it. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. And if you can, please stay home. Have a good week.